I'm Jane's oldest boy, Johnny, and I'm a drunk. How you doing? What a what a convention. What a beautiful sight this is to look out there and see all these scrub clean sober faces. What a place to have a convention, huh? Holy mackerel. You guys not only beat Notre Dame, but you have a convention at PGA National. My God. My wife, the Italian, took me over to that spa. Have you been to the spa? We walked in. She's going to get one of those things where they wrap her in grape leaves or whatever. I don't know. She took me in there after we played tennis this morning, and they thought she brought me in to surrender me. Anyway, John. That's my name. Anywhere you ever drank, there was a room named after me. I'm not only I'm not only an alcoholic, but I'm a cheat, a bully, a thief, a hustler, a liar too. But six thousand seven hundred and thirty days ago, not that I keep count, I quit drinking liquor. And all those defects of character that I just ticked off to you started gradually over the years to, to fade, and some of them have actually disappeared. I'm going to share with you today what it was like, what happened, a little bit, probably more than I should. Uh, and then I, I, I need to tell you what it's like now. I'm going to tell you enough of what happened to me and, and, and how my life was ruined with alcohol and how it almost all came undone, how the wheels came off. Because I want you to know that I'm not a spy here from the Coors Brewery. <laughs> I started early. I didn't take, I didn't start to drink really until I got out of high school and went in the Air Force. I was in the Air Force uh, on our side. Uh, <laughs> During the Korean conflict, uh, I saw a lot of action, most of it with hookers and bartenders. <laughs> but even though I didn't start drinking, my, 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 my disposition to alcoholism, which I now understand is hereditary, do we all agree on that? But can we agree, damn it, that so is recovery? Look at Mike and his mom. I have four sons in the program. Four sons in the program, none of whom had to stay drunk after he, the last one went in at 25 years old. One of them will have 10 years in October. One will have, two of them will have seven. And the other one just had six months and called me to tell me. So recovery can be hereditary, perhaps not in the genetic sense, but environmentally. The influence we have, the message we carry, the love and caring that we share with the generations after us. But I got started early. When I was in about third grade, uh, I already had the bent, the disposition. I was developing the, the leanings toward the alcoholic, obsessive, compulsive, anal retentive personality from which I've suffered all my life. <laughs> Clean off this roster. In third grade, we were taught by Sister Mary of the Treasury. And she told us, she told us one afternoon, said, when you go home tonight for your homework, I want you all to study. You do the spelling from the speller book, 
but I want you all to learn how to spell the name of your street you live on and what your father's occupation. And I didn't do my homework, of course. Came in the next morning and she started calling on kids. She called on uh, little Catherine Latcham and she said to her, did you do your homework? Yes, sister, I did. But what street do you live on? I live on 5th Street, F-I-F-T-H, and my father is a carpenter, C-A-R-P-E-N-T-E-R. She said, that's wonderful, sit down. Called on another little girl and said, did you do your homework? Yes, I did, sister. She said, I live on Brown Street, B-R-O-W-N, and my father is a butcher, B-U-T-C-H-E-R. She said, good, sit down. Then she called on my best pal, that's Aki Fatsengoggle. <laughs> Aki's in the program now. But but he, he did some of his homework. He wasn't as far advanced into his alcoholism as I was at that time. And he got up and he said, sister said, your father's occupation in the street you live on. He said, well, my father's a sheet metal worker. S-H-I-T-M-E-T. She said, no, no, wait a minute, Aki. Try that again. He said, he's a sheet metal worker. S-H-I-T-M-E. Sister said, no, stop. Don't do that, son. She had a portable blackboard up in the front of the room, one of those things on wheels, and she turned it around so the back of it was to the class, and she gave Aki a piece of chalk. And she said, you go to that blackboard. And you write down what your father's occupation is. Don't worry about the street you live on. And she said, you'll see you're misspelling it. And you'll get it correctly. So Aki went up to the front of the room and that nun called on me. And I hadn't done my homework and I was scared. But but I was resourceful. I knew. Denial was was bred into me. And I wouldn't admit I didn't do my homework. So I got up and she said, all right, Mr. Duffy. I said, Sister, I got a problem. She said, what is it? I said, I live on Susquehanna Avenue, and I don't know how to spell it. But my old man's a bookmaker, and I'll lay you 13 to 5, Aki wrote shit on that blackboard. <laughs> that, uh, that was the beginning. It got worse. It got worse. I drank my way through four years in the Air Force on our side. Uh, there wasn't anything remarkable about my my service in the United States Air Force, except that I got out without being court-martialed. When I got out, uh, I, I decided that uh, I came from a from a pretty tough section of Philadelphia called Corktown. I don't know if there are any Philadelphians who remember Corktown. I see a hand back there. Uh, Corktown was in sort of West Philadelphia, and it was all Irish. And in our neighborhood, if you walked down the street, you had more than half a face. You were a tourist. <laughs> I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer and that after I got out, because we had the Korean GI Bill of Rights, that I could get, listen to this, $120 a month was the check that we got from the government to go to school. And I started at LaSalle College. And I drove a cab, and I went to school, and I was already a chronic alcoholic. Had all of the symptoms of alcoholism were in my life already. But the desire to become what I wanted to be, the will, if you will, to become a lawyer, was just a tad stronger than my addiction at that time. And so I went sometimes days, weeks without indulging in the drug alcohol. 
because I needed to study. I knew that when I finished college, the government would stop sending me that check every month. And I didn't come from money, folks. I mean, my parents were in iron and steel. But that's because my mother used to iron. <laughs> and my father. So I needed to get my grades in it. See, it's sitting over here. My father used to steal. Uh, I needed to have grades that would that would support the award of uh, academic scholarships to law school because I was already married and cranking out a baby a year, as a good Irish Catholic would do. Uh, and that happened. Uh, I, I made it through LaSalle College. I got drunk every time I had an opportunity and a few dollars. Uh, but then I, I got scholarships to several law schools, and I accepted a scholarship to the law school at Villanova, outside Philadelphia. And I went through law school, and the same persisted there. There's nothing that I can tell you that would interest any of you, because you all know it wasn't that bad. Do you remember when it wasn't that bad? Any hands on it wasn't that bad? Yeah, see? It wasn't that bad. I mean... I didn't know where the car was, or I did. I made it home. I was able to drive well enough to get home. Uh, sure, I threw up, but I didn't get it on my shoes. Uh, I won the fight. I wasn't that badly hurt. You know, just look at the other guy. And I made it through. I muddled through academically sufficient enough to graduate at the top of my class. Known as a tough guy, as a as a, a real boozer who could hold his booze and still take an examination and write a good paper. And that's the kind of lawyer I became. Graduated from law school, started to practice law, immediately started to win. If there are lawyers here uh, from Florida who do litigation, let me tell you, in Philadelphia it's tough to break into litigation. I was in a courtroom the month after I graduated from law school, after I passed the bar in the fall. Uh, unheard of. But that's what I did. I love to talk and argue. I mean, usually I only talk to 12 people at a time. But that's what I do. That's the kind of work I do. I'm good at it. And I was able to do that and drink and drink and drink and drink because for the first time in my life, after I passed the bars, after I finished law school, after 20 years with nuns and priests and brothers, that seemingly never-ending series of Junes and Septembers was over. There was no more school. I could drink what I wanted now. And I had money to do it. Immediately I started making money. And I stayed out all the time. I drank every night. I never put that in italics. I never came home. For 10, 12, 15 years, I never came home. I missed the childhood years of seven beautiful children. Today, I know them. I couldn't say that. 20 years ago. I know my grandchildren today. 
if it were not for those of you where I live, I wouldn't know my grandchildren. Probably would not have lived to have. The story of my drinking is easy to tell because it was all-consuming. I would get up in the morning, a typical day, any day, a Monday, a Tuesday, a Friday, any day, and I would come to, well, let's start at night better. Come home 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, be involved in a, in a homicide, trying to murder trial. Come home at 4 o'clock in the morning. Let's make it an early night, 3 o'clock. Come home at 3 o'clock in the morning. Take two sequinals and a delayed-action amphetamine. Two barbiturates and a delayed-action amphetamine. And comatose like that, having consumed a bottle or a bottle and a half of, of liquor during the night. Barbiturate poisoning. Why didn't I get it? Why didn't I die like Alan Ladd did and so many others? I don't know. Come to, pop up three hours later, fold upright in bed, ready to go, unable to walk, however, bouncing off walls with a barbiturate hangover, a booze hangover, an amphetamine saying, get moving, you son of a bitch, you got to get to court. So I learned that if I took a tranquilizer then... That would take the edge off the amphetamine. And folks, that's the way I lived until I could get a drink. And I never drank in the daytime unless I was going to quit working that day. I didn't drink until after court. So let's go back to where we were. A morning in the life of John J. Duffy, hero lawyer. <laughs> leave, my, leave my home having taken my two quaaludes. 600 milligrams. Got that guy right where he lives. He's a looter. 600 milligrams of Quaalude and out the door into my shiny bright Cadillac and going to whatever court they wanted me in that morning. And driving along and saying to myself, today, God, let today be different. Today, if I can make it through, I'll leave court at 4.30 and I won't go to a bar. And I'll go home and I'll have pork chops and applesauce or whatever the kids eat, whatever their mother makes for them. And I'll introduce myself. And I'll, and I'll give them money. And I'll go to bed early. I'll maybe even like watch television. The Walton. And then I could say, good night, John Boy, or whatever. <laughs> and, and then, see, I'll go to sleep. And tomorrow morning when I wake up, I won't feel like this. I'll be better. And then, and then who knows what could happen. You know, maybe I'll think a little better tomorrow morning. And then 4.30 would come, and court would end. And perhaps I'd been beating on some police officer or arguing to some judge or whatever. And inexorably, just as predictably as night following day, I would go to some scuzzy, scummy, filthy toilet bar. I couldn't drink 
with decent people because I didn't want him to know. I didn't want him to know how and what and how much I drank. So I drank in toilets. I mean, I drank in bars where there was a, an ironclad rule that you had to have a shirt on. play liar's poker in a toilet of a bar at 4 o'clock in the morning because the proprietor of that particular dump didn't allow gambling at the bar. Hopeless. Unable ever to stop it. Stepping in front every morning and every night of the same speeding locomotive. And knowing that that's the way I was going to die. Not having the courage to commit suicide. It got so painful by the time I was in my late 30s that I can remember sitting on bar stools. I heard Chico last night. And he and I have so much in common. But we have it in common with so many of you. You know, you can grab... I see nods in the audience when I say things, and it's everywhere I go. We have so much in common. He talked about suicide, thinking about suicide. I didn't have the courage, and I had too many kids. And I didn't want my children to have to face the music when the newspapers said John Duffy commits suicide. Their old man killed himself. And I didn't want them to have what they might, what the guilt they might have that would go with it. So I had this great plan that involved victim-induced homicide. That's the, that's the proper legal term for what Chico was talking about last night. And that is, I was going to find a rape going on, and I was going to jump in and save the woman, and the guy would kill me. Or I was going to find a bank robbery going on, and jump in and stop it and save the money and all, and get shot and killed. And then the pain would go. See, I wasn't sick. I was in my right mind. Not. <laughs> and it went on and on and on until one day I was trying a murder case and two guys came up to me in the hall and they did not belong. They had hats. And I knew they were G-men. And the guy said to me, Mr. Duffy, you got an uncle who hasn't heard from you in seven years. And I said, you better go see my lawyer. They were talking about Uncle Sam. I said, you better go see my lawyer. I have to argue to this jury. And I went in to argue to the jury. And then my lawyer called me and he said, they know about you not filing tax returns. Well, let me tell you. I've distilled that problem down to a simple explanation. Here it goes. When you are as we are, there's a perfectly acceptable explanation. Because, first of all, you have to know it's April 15th. <laughs> Secondly, you have to care. Third, you've got to have some kind of records. you got to have, fourth, you got to have some money. And fifth, you have to either do the returns or pay some person to do them. I never knew or cared it was April 15th. I never had any records, and I seldom had any money. Spent all the money. So my lawyer told me he wanted to see me, and I agreed to meet him for dinner. And I knew. I, see, I was smart. I got a lawyer who was a drunk. 
I was attracted to him because I saw him try a case one time, drunk, and he won. And I thought only I did that. So I thought, well, this guy's in my league. So uh, he, he asked me to meet him downtown, and I said I would go, and I knew. I had, I had learned, see, he had become a wimp. Did you hear that wimp? He stopped drinking. He hadn't had a drink in a while. Uh, he, uh, he hadn't had an automobile accident. He was dressing better. He smelled better. Looked better. And I knew that he was going to try to do something to, to get me to quit drinking. So I went down and met him, and I ordered a drink. Uh, immediately, and we talked, and he said, look, for the case, and I've done this so many times since with other people, for the case, it would be so good if you went to this AA. For the case. Well, I said, hell, for the case. <laughs> I could go to that AA. So he asked me to meet him at an insane asylum on a Tuesday night. Scouts honor Troop 225 before I drank. He asked me to meet him at this insane asylum, Haverford State Hospital. It's a nut house. But, but it was, you know how you go in and run the meeting and, and, and people from the outside come. I mean, there were some there, but a lot of them were. Uh, so I go to the meeting. Well, I want to report to you. What a time. I immediately called my friend Kenny Lockerbie who was a newspaper editor. He's in the program now, but he wasn't then. Uh, I recruited him after I got sober. And I said, Kenny, you've got to see this. Hey, we met for drinks. I explained to him. And I said, I went to this AA meeting. Now, I had heard about AA many years ago. I had an uncle who didn't get it. And I said, I went to this meeting with John Rogers Carroll, and a woman, a guy got up. It was two speakers. A guy got up and talked about how he, when he was drinking, had driven his car or pickup truck or something and, and killed somebody in an accident. Drunk. And when he was finished, he got a standing ovation. I said, but it got better. The second speaker was a woman, and she didn't have the money for the milkman ever because... She always spent it on booze, and she made love to the milkman instead of pay him. And she got a standing ovation. I said, you got to come. We'll go Tuesday night. So this is, I swear this is true. I make up a lot of stuff in the story, but this part's true. So we went. The next Tuesday night, they had two more fools there who got up and said the same kind of thing. I mean, maybe they didn't kill somebody, but it was just as reprehensible. And they got standing ovations and free coffee and donuts like that. So Kenny and I went out and got drunk after the meeting and talked about how wonderful that would be to be that way, but we weren't quite ready. And besides, those people didn't understand they didn't have our job pressures and like that. And it got worse. This was toward the end of, of my drinking career. You know, I, I have one of the top five bottle stories in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't hear it because I don't remember it. Um, but after this thing started to get worse, prosecutors 
against whom I worked didn't like that that I hung out with motorcycle gang members and drug dealers and, and bank robbers and the like. And judges didn't like that I didn't come to court. You know, we made an expression, which they still say about me today. Court starts when Duffy gets there. Uh, and I just got, you know, I, I got to be a disgrace. I was a disgrace to the legal profession. And something had to be done about me. I was a festering sore in the community, everywhere I went. Decent people didn't want to be around me. And I got all of the big-time crooks, because, probably because they were using me. I thought I was a big wheel. And they caught up with me. They got me on the taxes. I was arrested for... Uh, for trying to break up a riot. I took a bullhorn off the mayor of some small town and I was drunk. Tried to break up a riot. They got me for obstructing. Uh, there came a day when a law clerk who worked for me filed a motion over my signature. I signed it and it was improperly done and I got read out by a judge and so I pistol whipped him. I was charged with gun charges and aggravated assault. A fellow who was a thief called my office one Friday night he had abandoned a stolen car on the parking lot of a, of a department store because he was caught inside using fake ID and credit card. And that car was full of stolen goods, and it had to be moved. Uh, I went to trial on that case. I don't think I moved that car. I don't think I was part of it. But I'm sure that people in my office, the criminals who were there that night drinking with me in my office, did it. And one of them said I was in on it. And it doesn't really matter whether I was or not. I was acquitted of all of the crimes except conspiracy. So my criminal record in that regard is unique. It's the only time in Pennsylvania when someone's been convicted of conspiracy but acquitted of the crimes as to which he was charged with conspiracy. But it came undone, folks. The wheels came off. It was over. It was a matter of time. The cases were going to go to trial. I wish that I were dead. I had no help, no hope, no one. I referred to my kids as the enemy. I'll tell you a little later how they referred to me. I, I, I felt out of place everywhere. I mean, even in the scummy bars, I felt out of place. I didn't belong at home. I didn't fit there. They didn't know me. I couldn't hang out with lawyers. If they weren't afraid of me, they were ashamed of me. I couldn't be with neighbors because they all talked about me. And I wanted to die. And on Sunday the 17th of February 1974, I almost did. I took so many drugs that day and drank so much liquor. I was outside with nothing on but a pair of silk pajamas. In a freezing, bitter, sub-freezing temperature. Never understanding. Just totally gone. You know, that, there used to be a cartoon, Joe Bitsplick in the, in the Little Abner. Guy went around with a black cloud over his head. you got to be gray to remember that guy. And that's the way I was. It was just, everywhere I went, there was this, I couldn't. 
And I didn't know why. You know, I was the kind of guy who would spit on you and not understand why you would be offended because my spit is clean. That's what booze had done to me. I was indeed worthless. And my lawyer wanted me to meet him on the 18th of February, 1974. And I went down to his office. And my Bridget, my wife, asked me if she could ride along. And it didn't even occur to me that that was unusual. You know, she wouldn't ask to drive, but she said, let me ride along. You're a little shaky. Uh, I was meeting him for lunch, and I came to about 10.30 or 11 o'clock that morning. When I got to my lawyer's office, my father was there. And I thought, oh, God. And he brought me into his office, and he sat me down with my father and my wife. And he shut the door. awfully scared and I was awfully sick and I wanted to die I wanted to pee I wanted to go I needed to get out of that room how many of us have needed to get out of that room yes how many hands on needed to get out yeah there you go and my lawyer a powerful guy little guy but a powerful guy said how are things John Like to the captain of the Titanic. How are things? How are things, General Custer? I said, things are fine. Fine, everything's fine. How are things? I was in flames. He said, "Uh, how are things at home? And I said, things at home are fine. Things at home are fine. Things at home are fine. Right, darling? Aren't things at home fine? And she stood stood tall that day. You know, my wife came from County Limerick, Ireland, and she was the right kind of wife. I was the boss, and that was it. She has since changed. (laughs) Took a divorce, but she has since changed. She said, uh, no, things are not fine. You call us the enemy. You call your kids the enemy. Do you know what you're called? You want that defined by example? As in, get to your rooms, it just pulled into the driveway. Don't make any noise, Casey, you'll waken it. We don't know you. Your children and I have a society of our own in which you play no role other than fiscal. You throw money at us and we take it. And if you don't throw enough, I steal it out of your pocket. You come home at four or five o'clock in the morning and conclude that I'm a lousy housekeeper because there's a cup and saucer in the sink when you want to pee. Do you know what it's like to have to wake, to be woken up and have to make love to a stinking drunk? No, things are not fine. Things are almost over, John. And I looked at my old man. It didn't take a rocket scientist to know he was going to be next. (laughs) And John Carroll said to him, said to me, how are things in the practice? And I said, in the practice. Now, there I got you. 
I said, in the practice, come on. In the metropolitan Philadelphia area, I have more criminal clients than anybody. Don't you wish you had my clients? And John said, yeah, and I soon will. He looked at my father. He said, Pop, how are things going in the office? My father, a couple of years before that, had become my office manager when he retired from a big oil company. My father said, John, everybody, all the men were named John. My father said, John, things are not good in the practice. My son thinks they are because there's plenty of money coming in from the gangsters. But he doesn't know how things are going in the practice. God, he's never there. I looked at my old man. I was still afraid of him. And I said, what do you mean, Pop? And he said, son, you have brought to the practice of law an entirely novel, a new defense. It's called hire John Duffy and never go to court. He said, you haven't tried a jury trial in a year, or maybe one in the past year. He said, you don't crank them up and run them out. You don't get those not guilty verdicts anymore. You ain't working, kid. John Carroll is going to have all your clients. And John said, yes, I am, because how do you think our cases are going to go? Well, I had some confidence. I said, the cases? Who could beat me when I have you? The best lawyer in the city, and I got the second best lawyer defending me. What a combination. He said, no, John, that's not how it's going to go. He said, you're going to go to jail. We're going to lose these next two big trials. We won a couple little ones. You know the one with the mayor and the thing? We won that. The thing with pistol whipping the law clerk, we won that one. But he said, when it comes to the taxes and to this thing with the conspiracy, you're belly up in the water, kid. He said, you're going to jail and you're, you're going to lose your ticket. You're going to be disbarred. Now he said, how would you like to have some of what I got? And I said, I'd, I'd do anything to get it. What price would you pay? He said. I said, I'd walk barefoot on hot coals. You know, the dramatic... He said, well, you don't need to do that. Just take your father home. Are you able to take some direct direction? I said, John, for God's sake, help me. And they're the five words that I believe saved my life. I'm going to tell you all now, and I, and I know, I know as sure as I stand here, that there's a crowd of people in this room who were in a room as I was that day. I didn't want AA. I didn't want help. I didn't want to get sober. I was doing the right thing for the wrong reason. I just wanted to get the hell out of there. I was scared and sick and embarrassed. My wife telling somebody have to make love to a drunk. And so I said I'd do what they told me to do. And that was that I was put into a detox with five other drunks in one room. And they smelled. And the next morning, she came to see me. And I got her good. I said, look what you've done to me now. <laughs> She's never let me forget that. And five days later, a guy I didn't even know, didn't even know him, picked me up and took me up to a place outside of Reading called Chit Chat Farm. Any chit chatters here? Everywhere we go. 
And when I got there, I decided they weren't going to get me. And I held out for three weeks. I'm here to report to you they didn't lay a glove on me in three weeks. I did everything they said for me to do, and I acted like I was in it, and I learned the language, and I looked at the steps, and I pretended. And at the end of the third week, something happened. I was doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And don't ask me what it was. I don't mean to trespass on Bill Wilson's burning bush. Something happened to me in that place. I looked around. There's a guy in this room who was there, and he played a big part in it, and he probably doesn't even know it. His name is Jim B. I don't know if they use the last name, Brian. He was a therapist. He's down here now. You hear, Jim? Oh, yeah. Well, you know what he told me? I never got a chance to thank him because soon after I left Chit Chat, he left. But he said something. He and an old woman both got me. I'm going to tell you what he said. He told a story and he said that he had been thrown out of Chester. Now, I'm going to tell you, folks, Chester, Pennsylvania is a place where if Pennsylvania needed an enema, the tube would be inserted in Chester. And he looked so good and he was so articulate and so vibrant and so full of life and so positive and so goddamn happy. And I said, I can have that. He wasn't doing too well. I can have that. And a woman beat me up for what I did to my wife and family and whatever. And that got to me. And I come out of there wanting to be sober. And I went to AA, a meeting at a time, and I started to listen. And I got scared. I ran into people in the rooms, people I hurt. One meeting, after a couple of weeks, I ran into two men I had beaten up. And I said to myself, they're going to take a vote. And they're not going to let me come here anymore. But it didn't happen. Those men came and hugged me and said, thank God you're here. Wasn't it terrible out there? And I thought the hugging, when I was in Chit Chat, I thought it was phony or gay. I didn't want to do it. And now I found myself hugging men because I wanted them to know that I meant for them to be with me and get sober together. And that bygones were bygones. And things started to get so much better. I mean, I didn't know all the steps. I didn't understand the language. It was six months. And I say this every time because it's really true. It took me six months to find out they were saying we have no dues or fees. I thought they were saying we have no Jews or thieves. I didn't listen. Now, you're all laughing because you know it's true. I mean, not that we have no Jews or thieves. It's true that we don't, we don't get it at first. It takes time. You have to, it, it's, there's an osmosis process. It takes time for it to sink in. Anyway, it started to get better and then it got worse. We lost those trials. Uh, 
I was suspended from the practice of law, summarily, without a hearing, by the Supreme Court, because you know the papers were full of Duffy trial this and Duffy trial that. Things got worse. But I had you and I had something new. I had a purpose in my life and I was commencing to mature. For the first time in my life, 41 years old, I was starting to grow up. I was facing problems without my medication. I was doing things to handle my life. I was living in a family situation without drugs and without alcohol. And I had to go to jail. A judge sentenced me to 23 months in jail. By the time I went to jail, when the appeals were up, I had been out of the practice of law for almost two years. It takes a long time before you actually go to jail when you're exhausting appeals. I'd gone back to driving a taxi cab. I was at a meeting one night after about four months in the program and I, money was running out. And I said at the meeting, money is running out. And a little old lady with one tooth in the middle said, money's running out? Well, why don't you get a job? You know, that's that's heavy stuff. I said, God damn it, I know I should come to this meeting tonight. There's the answer. And I did. I went back to driving a taxi cab in Philadelphia. But the time came when I had to give that job up and I had to go to jail and I had to do a 23-month jail sentence. But by then, I was three years amongst you, your Pennsylvania counterpart. I was not just abstinent. I was almost sober. I was happy. Can you read that? I was happy sometimes for hours in a day. Sometimes all day. Sometimes days in a row. Maybe a week. That never happened to me when I was drinking. I was helping other people. I read the sign that has become my credo. I am responsible. Whenever anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA always to be there. And for that, I am responsible. It was there for me in that room. It was there for me at that rehabilitation hospital. And it was there for me in the rooms after. And so, skipping ahead, I'll tell you, my avocation from that day to this, 6,730 of them, has been to help other people who still suffer. Italian and I do two or three or four or five interventions every month to get people into treatment. We drag them off the bar stools. We make them do the right thing for the wrong reason. We force on them our sharing of what we have because almost all of them wind up in seats like this, sober, as I did. And so I went to jail. And when they slammed that door shut, they had electric doors, and that thing clanged when I was in that prison in maximum security because the warden was my friend, and he said, if I put you in population, you'll never get any sleep. They'll have you up writing writs all night every night. I lay back on that bunk and put my hand behind my head. I weighed 70 pounds less then. 
uh, which is the answer to how did I get this Italian whom I want you to meet, it was before I quit smoking anywhere. I put my arm behind my head and I said, this is it, brother. You're in jail. 23 months. But I said to myself that day, because of what I got from you, this is what happened. Because of what I got from you, I said, I will practice law again. They can jail me. They can beat me. They can prosecute me, but they can't own me. And I'm an AA now, and I am responsible, and I will be a trial lawyer again. And I wrote it in a letter from my cell, D-15. And I commenced that sentence. You know how long it lasted? Nine days. I don't know whether that reaction was a sucker got away with it or whether it was, God bless him, he was fortunate. It doesn't matter to me because my ass got out of jail. And the reason was that the judge who sentenced me, who had since retired and who put what was then a harsh sentence on me, passed on the parole rights, parole duties, obligations, and power to a successor judge. And all those judges knew what was going on in my life with AA. I was three years sober. They knew what I was doing with other people and they figured maybe it wasn't being done just to have an impact on the jail sentence. And in nine days I was put in work release and 21 days thereafter I was paroled. And my lawyer said, go to work for me. He said, you write like a poet. Come and work with me and do this writing. I can pay you what you have on the cabs. I was leaving work release, driving my Cadillac downtown, taking out a cab. Right? But what I didn't tell you or him was, the night before he offered me the job, I picked up two girls at 22nd and Art Streets in Philadelphia, and one of them stuck a 32 caliber revolver in my ear and cocked it. And that, folks, sounds like Big Ben. It went bong, bong in my ear. I had to take over the robbery. They weren't doing it right. I said, there are people in the street. Let me pull down the street. I got myself fully, completely, thoroughly, and properly robbed. Gave them all the money. Made sure they got the change. And then when John said to me, would you go to work for me? Could you leave? <laughs> Yellow cab, he said. <laughs> I said, are you kidding? I quit there. He said, when? I said, about two minutes ago when you asked me if I, could, if I would go to work for you. And so I went back. I went to work for him. It's dragging out. It shouldn't. I want to wrap it up. There are a couple of things I want to tell you about what has happened in this program, what's happened, how, how it turned out finally. I stayed with my Alcoholics Anonymous, and there came a day when I was three years under suspension when I was given notice that the disciplinary hearing before the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, the disciplinary board would be held. And the prosecutor who prosecuted me on the two chief cases against me asked for leave to come and testify. We thought the jig was up and he came in and said, he was their first witness. He said, my office has no interest in this man being reinstated to practice. 
because it would not be good for us. But he said, what you people need to know is that we have seen a metamorphosis. We don't know what they do in these Protestant churches. We're told that's where Irish Catholics go to get sober. But whatever it is, this is not the same John Duffy who beat people up and didn't pay his taxes and consorted with criminals. This is a different man, a gifted lawyer who deserves to be reinstated. And that board voted to reinstate me, to suspend me, to back time and reinstate me. And I got an order signed by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania to come down and be sworn in again. And I went down and raised my right hand and took an oath to support and defend the Constitution. And then I took that piece of paper, that reinstatement order, and the movie Rocky had just been made. And I was in Philadelphia. And I drove in the rain to the steps of the art museum, drove my Cadillac up on the sidewalk, got out of that car, and ran up those steps three at a time, and I made it to the top. holding that reinstatement order, and there were three women up there with cameras. They were tourists. And they got to know, to this day, who was the fat guy jumping up and down with the paper in his hand. Uh, so many good things happen. I have learned to care. I played golf with a buddy of mine not long ago. And, you know, you talk, the theme is sharing. He said to me, come with me, i got to visit my father. His father's 91 years old. And he's in a, in a nursing home. And we went to visit the old guy. And my buddy, he's in the program. My buddy. We went to visit the old man. My buddy took him in. I mean, this is the, these are the things that we do and think nothing of it. He took him in and he changed his pajamas and stuff. And I hadn't had anything to eat. You know, I'm, I don't miss many meals. And the old man had a dish of peanuts on the table. And I started to pick. I had one peanut and two peanuts and three, and I ate the whole dish of peanuts. And so when he came out, I said, Mr. Martin, I ate all your peanuts. I said, but don't worry. You know, we learn a lot in the fellowship. I'm going to come back Friday by myself, and I'm going to beat the pants off you playing some checkers. And I'll bring you three jars of those peanuts. How's that? He said, Johnny, don't worry about them peanuts. He said, I can't chew those peanuts. I ain't got no teeth. He said, all I ever do is suck the chocolate off them. I was done with those. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. See, I wanted to see if you're all awake. Let me tell you what happened when I got reinstated, then I'm going to let you go. My Italian's going to beat me up because it took so long. Anyway. Chico did it. Damn it, I'm allowed to do it. Stand up, Marie, and say hello. Meet my new wife. Fourteen years sober, she is. What has happened is uh, she's 21 years younger than the age she believes I am. What has happened in my life, thanks to you and those like you, is that my kids love and adore me. The ones who needed treatment have it only because I got it, only because those people cornered me in that room 
and forced me to do the right thing for the wrong reason. I have grandchildren now. I have a sign in my office and in my home. Uh, I often say I was a lousy father, but damn it, I'm a good grandfather. I have a sign in my office and another one in my home, and the signs say, Grandchildren are your reward from God for not killing your children. Well, my baby, my baby who went through chit-chat seven months ago, Pepper, Pepper lives on, well, look, how, how, did this kid, was this kid destined to be an alcoholic? He had a brother, Sean, Shamus, Shannon, and Shem. When he got born, I couldn't find a name that began with Sh. S-E-A-N, S-E-A-M-U-S, S-H-A-N-N-O-N, and S-H-E-M. I mean, Shem is Jewish. It was Noah's oldest son. I'm out of S-H sounds. And drunk, I got out of dictionary. Swear this is true. I told about three things that are true today. And this is one of them. I went through the dictionary. The name books had no other sounding name. I got to shaving and took the G off. And when he went to school, the nun said, another good Irish stuffy name, Shavin. His name is Shavin. I made the name off shaving. I mean, did he need... Did he need to become an alcoholic? I mean, it was predestined. He lives on Mars with my Aunt Martha. Anyway, he's a rock and roll musician. And uh, when I got reinstated, I went to a hearing. We represented a big-time bookmaker. And I went to a hearing uh, for one of his bag men. And for those of you who have to pee, this is the end. This little vignette tells you what it was like what happened, and what it's like now. Pepper said to me, you're going to hearing tomorrow, Father. I was reinstated one day, came home. The next day I said, I'm going to this hearing to represent this bag man for the bookmaker. Pepper said, you think that'll be page one, Father? I said, no, Pepper, it's, it's a little nobody guy. You know, it's nothing. It won't be on the front page of the Philadelphia paper. Well, when I went to the hearing, there was an investigative reporter who was doing a series on the banker uh, and by the way, Jimmy was from Chester. On the banker of this numbers operation, who, was re who we really represented. And he had a photographer at the hearing, and he, was, he wrote a story. And the next day, it was on the front page of the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin. It's a paper that has since folded. And Pepper came home from school that day, picked up the newspaper in the driveway, and went into the house. He was in sixth grade, I think looked at the newspaper and screamed, Mom, we're back. She said, what is it? He said, Father's on the front page of the newspaper, and it's his client who's in trouble. Thanks for having me, Florida. God bless you.